For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Fraser here. We're doing something a bit different on this week's Spike podcast. Following Turkey's invasion of northern Syria and the unravelling of the Kurds and the United States' strategy against ISIS, I've invited two special expert guests, Rakib Issan and Mesa Gifford, to discuss what this means for the Middle East and for us here in the UK. We'll also discuss the problem of homegrown terrorism and the rise of the far right. But before we get on to that, I wanted to let you know about an exciting new addition to Spiked, our very own online shop. You can now get your hands on a t-shirt, hoodie, mug or tote bag featuring your favourite Spiked slogan, from Love Europe, Hate the EU, to Ban Nothing, Question Everything. What could be a better gift for yourself and all your most pro-Brexit, pro-freedom loved ones? Plus, buying our merchandise is a great way to support Spiked. To go to our shop, just go to spiked-online.com and click the button that says shop in the top right corner. Now, back to the Spiked podcast. Trump ordering all U.S. troops to withdraw from their positions in northern Syria. Turkish troops intensified their assault against Kurdish-led forces. U.S. allies who played a major role in the fight against ISIS. Hundreds of ISIS prisoners escaped from a camp. Women and children with suspected links to Islamic State militants have escaped. ISIS fighters escape and pose a threat elsewhere. Well, they're going to be escaping to Europe. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Spiked Podcast. This week we're taking a look at the state of terrorism. I'm joined by two fantastic guests, Rakib Bessan, Spiked columnist and research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society's Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism. Thank you for having me today, Fraser. And Mesa Gifford is a human rights campaigner who fought on the front line against ISIS with the Kurdish YPG. Great to be here. So let's start off, first of all, by talking about the situation in Syria. Uh, Donald Trump has effectively given the green light for Turkey to invade northern Syria and attack Kurdish forces. Um, Until recently, the Kurds had been the US's chief ally in the fight against ISIS. Even around 11,000 Kurdish troops gave their lives to defeat ISIS. So, uh, Mesa, my first question to you is, in March, we were celebrating the defeat of the ISIS caliphate. But is that work now starting to unravel? Well, yes. Um, What we face now is a complete American withdrawal from Syria. Britain will be um, not very far behind. And you could well see the carving up of everything that we fought for in Syria. So in the south around Deir Zor, Assad will no doubt seize the oil fields. He needs that lifeline, that financial lifeline. In the centre of the country, around Deir Zor as well, uh, but around Raqqa, um, ISIS are already trying to rise up. They've got a lot of terror cells there. Uh, A huge amount of weapons and money is buried out in the deserts. They've got a lot of resources and they're determined to have ISIS 2.0. And in the north, you've got Turkey now seizing uh, Kurdish possessions there and with a longer term plan to to sort of colonise it by allowing um, Arab refugees from other parts of the country to, to go in. So it's it's we've effectively just kicked a hornet's nest. Mm. We've taken what was quite a package deal. We'd defeated ISIS, we'd created democracy in eastern Syria and we'd tossed it all away um, because of Donald Trump's foolishness. 
And um, one of the biggest worries is is that it will quite directly lead to um, ISIS prisoners escaping. There's already been, you know, one particular one prison where um, estimates bet- put between 500 and around 750. Some people even saying 800 um, mm. ISIS affiliates have escaped. I mean, Rakib, what does this mean for ISIS in particular? Do you think? Well, I think firstly. It's been a real foreign policy blunder from President Trump, if I'm being perfectly honest. I think the US presence there acted as a check on Turkish expansionism, Turkish ambition. I think we should be really worried about the idea that there's uh, imprisoned, well, formerly imprisoned ISIS fighters potentially being released, Mm. because that could form the basis for revival there. So we're talking about a possible resurgence, and I think that is particularly worrying for us. And of course, people coming home. So yeah, I think people will absolutely. be terrified of the chance that um, the likes of Shamima Bagan, or much worse than that, um, some uh, people involved in the murders of the journalists and everything else walking British streets, because that's effectively what could happen. Um, uh, there's uh, something like 13,000 fanatical fighters in the prisons, um, as well as 80,000 or 70 to 80,000 uh, females and, and children as well. So this is a huge problem, and it could be arriving on our doorstep very soon. It's a huge problem because I think the Turkish Islamist militiamen, they'll actually find a lot of common ground with these people who were in prison. And that's the worrying thing, really. So for President Trump, just to, I mean, I presume that he was given a fair amount of advice before he took the decision to withdraw his troops. It's quite incredible, really, that he's ignored that expert knowledge, and it could be with potentially devastating consequences for the region. I mean, and also, Trump has um, made his view quite clear all along, that these ISIS fighters are Europe's problem and Europe should take them back. And he even, you know, suggested in quite an outrageous comment recently that um, it doesn't really matter because they'll all be going to Europe anyway. What's, what is the risk there, do you think? Well, they've, um, there's, there's a corridor that already exists. People have come back. I understand the attacks in Paris were funded, planned in Raqqa. The people who participated in the violence were from, uh, were from Syria uh, or had to travel to Syria at some points. So it shows you the reach of ISIS. And, I, and one, one thing that's quite frustrating here is, just as you said, Donald Trump clearly has not sought proper advice or he certainly hasn't listened to it. Mm. Donald mm. Trump is the businessman. He, is the, he goes from the gut, but he doesn't have a huge experience of international relations. He didn't listen to Brett McGurk, the former special presidential envoy to the anti-ISIS coalition, nor did he listen to General Mattis, uh, General Mad Dog Mattis, the person that we should be listening to right now. Um, So I think, as I said, Donald Trump is the one who's kicked over this hornet's nest. And and as I said, it will be our problem very soon. Well, I'll just make the point that, you know, Donald Trump, he sees himself as this calculating businessman, but the decision is made. It's not it's not great from an American strategic perspective. And the reality of the matter is he's left a, he's left a, a few hundred um, American military personnel there, but the amount of responsibility that they have, it's just, it's just not workable at all. It would have been difficult enough for the initial 2,000 American military personnel there. And it just shows that, for me, that it's a move that is, it, it could carry serious consequences. And it's, it's a risky approach to take, to be honest. And if you even think about this purely in strategic terms mm, for the US, you know, forget about the morals of abandoning the Kurds, mm. abandoning... You know, Which is what has happened, essentially, is an abandonment. No two ways about it. But even even just in terms of you know in terms of um, strategy in the region, you know, we've seen in the last few days. We're recording this on Monday, so there could be you know other quite um, stark developments. But we've seen now that the Kurds have sort of switched sides um, and are effectively siding with Assad now. 
Well, Syria is the land of bad options, isn't yeah. it? Essentially, yeah. <laughs> yeah they, well, where else can they turn? That's that's the that's the question. Well, the the art of war. They say the art of war is to defeat your enemy without actually fighting them, and that's um, that's what the Americans effectively did. Because just as you say, they um, with a very small footprint in country, no more than a few thousand Americans and, and foreign co- uh, and the wider coalition, they teamed up and created the SDF, created tens of thousands of fighters that took the fight to ISIS. Eleven thousand of them died, which shows who did the heavy lifting. The mm. fact that eight Americans have died in this conflict, most of whom by accidents, um, shows you that actually by l- working with local partners, mm. America has actually achieved something quite remarkable. Um, and if you look at all the previous mistakes in Iraq and other places, which is quite kind of sort of top-down peace building, creating institutions, um, implanting American democracy on them, Instead, this was about listening to local people, working mm. with the Kurds, creating the SDF. Um, it wasn't the Americans that asked them to believe in feminism, in equality, in secular values. These are things that actually came from the region. Mm. So it's incredibly refreshing. So, so you're swapping that, that secularism, that refreshing new progressive values, and you're swapping it for Turkish FSA jihadism. And just as you say, there was... Um, reports now that ISIS prisoners are being emptied. I saw a report just today that um, the Americans are saying that the FSA are releasing ISIS prisoners and saying that the YPG are doing it. So right. it's very murky. Whether that's true or not, we'll have to see. That's just a report that I saw before I came on air. Um, but it just shows you that how far we've fallen. And can you um, give us and give the listeners at home an idea of what it is like to be in the in the battle against ISIS? Uh, how we, we do see them as almost these kind of um, devils. I mean, that's that's a true description, though, isn't it? Well, the, certainly what they did to Syria is devilish, is horrendous. Like they, they, they plumbed new depths of depravity, the, the massacres of the Yazidis, the, the, the propaganda they put out from not just the decapitations, which were very much inspired by uh, sort of Zakawi, the sort of the post-insurgency phase of, in Iraq. They went, went much further than that, even darker than that, whereby they were uh, drowning people in cages, mm-hmm. locking people into cars and shooting RPGs at them. This was a level of violence it was as if the, the madman had seized control of the, the the mental hospital or whatever the expression is or even slowly running over people with tanks at a exactly. very slow pace as well well it just that's their mentality that's what we're dealing with here people who are their famous saying which actually i like to use as well to show how bad they are and how how good the kurds are is they say um uh we love death as much as you love life um but again you know, it just shows you what we're dealing with here and I mean, until until recently, a lot of the discussion around um, ISIS in Syria was uh, based on whether we should um, repatriate ISIS criminals, people like Shamima Begum, people like um, Jack Letts, and people who've had their uh, jihadi Jack, as he's uh, otherwise known. More affectionately known. <laughs> um, how, uh, do you find that whole discussion quite strange given the um you know given the what we know about the barbarism of of isis i mean is it is it, uh, it would it even be possible now given the chaos that's in in the region oh, i mean i think for me it's very clear there's very little public appetite for such <laughs> repatriation yeah. purposes and ultimately the, the home secretary Preeti patel she's made it very clear that shamima begum will not be welcomed back on british soil and i think that's very much in line with general public um, opinion here. I would say so, yes. I would say so. So <laughs> I, I would think, and it was interesting because initially, you know, the, the, the robust action when it came to um, 
approaching the issue of Shamima Begum's possible return. It was said, oh, no, this is racism. This is because mm. she's of Bangladeshi origin. But then how they approached the Jihadi Jack case very much showed that that's actually not true. Yeah. Yeah. And it shows you how far certain corners of the press and human so-called human rights activists have fallen because they, they, they're forgetting who the real victims are. Absolutely. Here. Yeah. Like, Syria and Iraq. And just to answer your, your question directly, actually, earlier, like... Being on the ground um, was her- horrendous in parts. Other times it was incredibly boring, particularly in the, 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 <laughs> the villages. Yeah. I spent much of my time looking at ISIS more than I did fighting them. Mm. But it was when we got into the cities, Mambej, Raqqa, that the months were of, of heavy fighting, of street-to-street mm. battles. Hundreds of Kurds died in, in, in Raqqa. And, but you also saw... Uh, the brothels that ISIS had. You had you the, the liberation of the sex slaves that ISIS had. This is what we're dealing with. And uh, people like Shamir Beg and people like so-called Jihadi Jack, they chose to go to Syria. Mm. They mm. ISIS, uh, that propaganda I mentioned earlier, they saw the people drowned in cages and mm. they believed in it so much they wanted to go out. So this Absolutely. is this is their character. And I don't think Britain owes them anything, if I'm honest. Do you think that they pose a, a serious danger to us if they were to come back? I mean, obviously they say that they're reformed a lot of the time, but can we really believe that? Well, it doesn't even matter if, they, if they're mm. reformed or not. So there has to be a level of justice here. So they've committed a crime. Our first thought should not be their, um, their mental well-being and should, mm. we shouldn't be rehabilitating them straight away. We should be punishing them in the first instance and then re- rehabilitating them while in prison. Um, we certainly shouldn't be looking at them as victims. Absolutely. Um, but one, one thing that i think people wouldn't forgive ourselves if we there are hundreds of europeans actually possibly thousands we don't know the exact number who would potentially come to back to europe it just takes one of them to do something terrible and uh would we ever forgive ourselves if we allowed these people to flood into europe and then they were to set off a bomb or were to attack someone in the streets so i i hope uh, I'm, I'm glad as you say that um the the home office and the um and people in government uh, hopefully they've seen sense and they'll listen to the british public and, and really keep them out if i'm honest and of course there there are examples of um returning jihadists committing crimes i'm thinking particularly of you know salman abedi was in was allowed to return from uh, Libya, mm-hmm. for instance. I mean, I'd make the point, just building on the point of Shamima Begum in particular, often mm. her age is used as a defence while she was mm. only 15 years old. I'd make the point that's still five years above the age of criminal responsibility Absolutely. in England and Wales. Yeah. And I think that defence is really disrespectful towards young British Muslim girls currently in high school. Mm. All they want to do is focus on their education, do the best they can for their families. Mm. I think using that age of defence is actually fundamentally disrespectful towards them, and I don't buy into that defence at all. No, and you can join the British Army at 16. And she was just a few days short of her 16th mm. birthday. Yeah. And the, the Labour Party at the moment wants to lower the, age, the voting age <laughs> to 16. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you, and if, if, if young men can join the British Army at 16 and be in, on the battle at 18, which one of my friends was, he, he was wounded in Afghanistan uh, literally about three months after his 18th birthday. So um, if we're willing to give agency to young people in that way, then we've got to give agency and, yeah, a modicum That's a of respect degree of accountability that has to yes. be held. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But I mean, you you fought against ISIS. Can you? Could you ever? I'm not suggesting sympathise or to empathise with these people. But I mean, what is going on in their heads? Do- well, it's um, each one, I suppose, has to be treated as on a case by case basis. There's um, 
um, obviously people go for different reasons. Many have, have come from dysfunctional families. Some is, is part of a, is a, is they're seeking redemption in some way for a, a past something they've done, whether that's drink or drugs or, ga- or gang activity, that sort of thing. But uh, in the first instance, we mustn't forget that ISIS was honest uh, about what they were doing in Syria. We have to be uh, clear that they've destroyed Syria and Iraq. They've killed hundreds of thousands of people. They've devastated the region. And these British people who had every opportunity in life to go to school, have an education, they've gone out and they've committed horrendous violence, allowing them back into the UK um, to have a, effectively a slap on the wrist under current legislation. They could well be out within five years, mm. even if we were to convict them. Um, so, And they would then afterwards, they would presumably get married. They might, uh, they may not commit any more violence, but they would get married. They might get a job. They might pursue education. But what about their victims in Syria and Iraq who are yeah. currently in refugee camps with their homes burnt, with their children raped, with their mothers and fathers killed? They've got a life sentence while the people could potentially come back to the UK. So what is that about our own moral character as a country? So we have to be thinking about these sort of issues and then think of them about them very seriously. What's the kind of profile of one of these um, ISIS fighters? Because it, it possibly isn't um, as straightforward as, as people think. I don't know if you... Oh, it's, it's varied. That's the truth. But I'd, I'd, I'd support the points that you made in terms of, the, you know, these are people that they ultimately had opportunities here in the UK, yeah. free education. Many many of them well-educated, isn't, isn't that and right? That's I another mean... point. So... I think that at the end, I think we have to really think about what our country stands for, to be honest. If we Mm. were just to allow these people to come in and then eventually that they can rebuild their lives. To be perfectly honest, I think that would be a a sign of weakness Mm. in our country. That's why I honestly believe that. To what extent does, you know, I I guess what we stand for um, create problems? I mean, there does seem to be a lack of social cohesion in Britain, maybe a um, not a very great attachment to um, any kind of national identity. I mean, is that a problem in this regard, do you think? I think that when we're looking at counter-extremism policy, I think social cohesion definitely has to come into it. I think the reality of the matter is that in certain parts of the country, particularly urbanised, um, more deprived parts of the country, especially parts of northern England, you do have this existence of parallel societies where you have people of different ethnic and religious backgrounds. Hmm. Well, they're living well they're they're living alongside one another but they're not really living together they don't communicate very Mm. much there's not much of that positive social interaction and I think that when you when you have that sort of situation that is where extremists really do come into play because when they push these extremist narratives they're based on sweeping negative generalizations of other sections of society well if you do have those friendly social relationships with people which are different to you outside of your religious and ethnic group you'll be more inclined to reject those extremist narratives yeah. so i think social integration is a very important part of a broader counter extremism strategy yeah it's it's absolutely right i mean i when you look around um uh, the streets. It's very different to on Twitter. The, f- the frustrating thing about Twitter is um, people vent their political point of view and their anger and everything else. Uh, but I have to say, as a middle class guy from Cambridge, when I went on Twitter and discovered <laughs> uh, certain um, communities talking amongst Twitter, I was actually genuinely shocked, uh, mm. particularly amongst young people in, in, say, London, about their view on Britain and British history. It was actually completely out of sync with my own background and my own education. And um, uh, one thing that I would hope is that if we are uh, to build uh, a a sort of a positive future, like a national identity, it is actually through education. It's actually through integration. Mm. It's actually to show people that there's there's much there's a much bigger vision uh, to this country and to the world than uh, than social media is allowing at the moment. Um, So yeah, it's it's a very complicated uh, complicated area. 
And and just um, staying in the in the UK for the moment. I mean, is is there much um, Islamist activity that should worry us, or is is the threat more returning jihadists? Do you think? I, th- I think that we have to be wary of both. If I'm yeah. being completely honest, uh, even though there's uh, Neil Basu. He's the counter-extremism chief. He said that the fastest growing threat is actually the far right. right. It's very clear that the main threat, the primary threat, is still Islamist extremism. So, But I think we need to be wary of... Ret- I mean, th- apparently there's already hundreds of ISIS fighters who have already returned to the UK. So we need to be really wary of that the, the, the threat that that poses. Mm. And and are these, um, you know, is it still ISIS, the primary jihadist group that's that's causing trouble in Britain? Are there other newer? I think what what you have with ISIS is that they tend to attach them. It's, it's almost you could sort of a broad international network where they attach themselves to local organisations. So, for example, yeah. we saw with the Easter Sunday uh, terrorist attacks in Sri Lanka. Mm. The, 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 the that was, a, it was technically a local group. It had it was you could, you could almost call it an ISIS affiliate. Yeah. So you'll see that with ISIS, it'll be a broader international national framework but they're trying to bring together local islamist organizations under the sort of isis umbrella you could say yeah there's 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 a sense of urgency to isis as well which al-qaeda never really had al-qaeda was very much had a vision for a so-called caliphate in the future whereas isis was like this it's the caliphate is here and now Mm. and uh the fight is now Mm. and isis was born from zakawi from um the islamic state of iraq a particularly vicious and horrendous terrorist organization there they've been going for a very long time he pioneered the the um mass murder and attacks on places like schools and places of worship, mm. a deliberate attempt to force um, to communities apart, which would then be used to then thrive off the violence afterwards. So again, places. why would they attack Manchester with a suicide bomb? Why not Chelsea Barracks? Why not um, a military uh, place somewhere else in London? Um, it, the reason for that is to, because they want British people to hate uh, Muslims. They want yeah. uh, to sow division within society. And thankfully, they lost. It never happened. And it never, it very rarely materialises. Uh, sure, there has been a spike in the far right, but it's, um, uh, but it's not as bad a problem as the original uh, sort of cause of it. Um, so uh, I think we, we need to treat ISIS with a, with a sense of urgency as they're Absolutely. treating their so-called jihad in urgent, with urgency. Yeah, and I, I was going to ask about the far right. Actually, there, um, obviously, there have been, especially around the world, um, some very serious and horrific um, attacks. But in, in the UK, it seems it seems to have been much more um, limited um, for now. Thankfully, mm. uh, I mean, what what's your kind of overview, uh, Rakib, on the far right uh, threat? In terms well, I think in terms of any extremist threats, it's important that that we don't treat any of those threats with. You know, we don't take a complacent approach to any sort of um, extremist threat. It's true. I mean, the the, the two attacks I would say really spring to mind is the murder of uh, Joe Cox and the Finsbury Park Mosque, which Mm -hmm. uh, Makramali sadly sadly, um, died in those uh, in that terrorist attack. But we have to make the point that I think all too often people try and draw almost like a false equivalency that, you know, there's a far right extremist threat and the jihadist, um, Islamist extremist threat. The primary threat in the UK is still Islamist extremism. If if there's one thing that we have to really talk about is that you can see with far right organisations, they're latching on to what is the most important political issue at the moment, which is Brexit. Right. So you can see that Brexit betrayal rhetoric is being increasingly co-opted by far right organisations. And this is where you... I would imagine that you know this is where political disaffection comes into it, dissatisfaction mm. with how the, dem- de- the democratic system works. You will see that if, say, Brexit was to be overturned, 
you will see far-right organisations really hitting hard in the sort of leave voting, deindustrialized yeah. heartlands. And I think pro-Remain politicians, particularly those who want to overturn the mm. result in June th- that was delivered in June 2016, they don't really like talking about the social risks attached to actually doing that and overturning mm. the result. That's interesting. And I think also many people are quite keen to say that perhaps the far-right is larger than it is or that its influence is larger than it is or that it is related to either you know, mainstream things like Brexit and mm. could we be playing into their hands if we, if we, you know, accept that kind of narrative? I think that more generally, I think, as I said, it's important not to be complacent. Yeah. And I think the reality of the matter is, is when people are disillusioned with their political, you know, with their politics, with their elected representatives, where they're mm. completely dissatisfied with how the democratic system works for them. That is where extremist organisations that is when they find really fertile ground to really push ahead with their narratives. The, the trouble with the, the, the far right is we need to actually understand who the far right is for, mm. for, in the first instance. Because one thing that I have a severe critique I have of the, of the left at the moment is that they, they don't quite understand what Nazism is and they don't understand what the far right actually is. <laughs> yeah. when, you, when you wake up one morning, you open the paper and you see people accusing John Cleese, Basil Fawlty, of being a Nazi <laughs> uh, because of his comments on London. Or, um, uh, and as I said, I think in the, in the last podcast, I did with you guys uh, the the effort to get rid of uh, Nelson's statue because he was somehow a white supremacist and mm. I think a lot of people who go to the far right are very similar reasons to people who would join a, an Islamist organisation again mm. it's maybe a sense of redemption uh, it's um, uh, a, a sense of misplaced anger like they want the attention of the the, the community online that, they, that they're getting but it might be also the case they crave a sense of belonging yeah mm. well I think firstly we've lacked serious political leadership when it comes to framing you know shared values a shared framework that people irrespective of their ethnicity or religious background that they can really buy mm. into mm. i think we really lack that political leadership but I, I agree with the point that all too often you know labels such as far right fascist mm. racist they're being overused yeah. you know, to an extent is draining these terms of any sort of historical weight and have significance. you seen uh, have you seen those hilarious programs which were usually on a sunday afternoon and it'll be something like what does it mean to be british and then they'll have on one side people saying oh british is it's a racist society and we need to do this and we need to do that and other people being overly patriotic on the other side um but actually then when they say oh what is being british a lot of the audience turn around and say well it's cricket it's warm beer they don't um there's no real sense like that uh, people they they've uh, people want to have that sense of identity even not the people who are arguing for it but they don't exactly know um how to actually frame it how to yeah. frame it exactly yeah. and it's and it, that's what we perhaps need to change because unless we do then we're going to be muddled and and when you're muddled that's when the loudest voices speak up and i think that's a big point to make on integration when you're asking people you know you need to integrate but what are you actually integrate what are they in, what are you asking them to integrate into as you're suggesting i think very few people you know very few britons could tell give you a good idea of what it means to be british and you know if you ask people what are the government's so-called british values i think a lot of people would have a very hard time um, answering those yeah, yeah. instead instead a lot of people and maybe this is where i'm getting it online um because um uh why i'm so was so shocked when i first joined twitter and and that is without that that framework those red lines in which you could draw to say this is the british identity and this is what it means to be british instead people who come into the uk will then they let's say they open a, a corner shop or they become a taxi driver but what do they see of britain they see britain stumbling out of their taxi at 
five o'clock in the morning, throwing exactly. up on the pavement every Friday. And then they say to themselves, actually, I don't want to integrate into that in that part of Britain. Absolutely. But that's not Britain. Yeah. Um, they need to realise that because I don't like it either. But um, uh, I'll stick up for the uh, people <laughs> stumbling out of taxi. Taxi. Sure. <laughs> Feckless degeneracy. <laughs> Someone has to. No, but I, I, I completely understand your point. And I think um, isn't often that kind of view of Britain, um, view of the West in particular, used by, um, you know, if you're thinking about um, hardline Islamists as a, as a way of saying the West is morally degenerate. But this is an interesting thing because I've, you know, I've analysed, you know, these far-right terrorist manifestos which are increasingly, you know, being produced before these terrorist attacks actually take place. What you'll see in the Islamist literature but also the far-right literature is that idea that there's a moral decay. Right. There's effectless degeneracy. There's this obsession with celebrity icons. For example, Brenton Tarrant, who was behind the Christchurch uh, terrorist attacks, he, he, you know, he absolutely slated Madonna, for example, because you know, trying to talk, you know, attacking these celebrity icons, and the, uh, she's a representation of this feckless degeneracy that he hates. So I think there is a sense that if you want to talk about British values or shared framework, I think a good starting point would be. A sense of patriotism, which is fundamentally community spirited. Yeah. You know, the idea you try and do the best you can for your community. But this is not your ethnic or religious community. It might be your neighborhood, for example, which might actually be ethnically and religiously diverse. So trying to do the best you can for your neighborhood. I think there's a sense of, you know, I do think that Britain in recent times that the problems of, you know, family breakdown and the associated social ills to that. So I think that there's a sense of, you know, a community, community spirited, family oriented would be a big thing for me because I think that's something that we've lost, you know, perhaps in recent times. And that's, that's perhaps something that in migrant communities, we can see that there might be a, a strong point there. Yeah. You know, that strong sense of, you know, family values, really trying to do the best you can for your family, taking care of your elders. Mm. I think these are things that we could really learn. Mm, definitely. So what are the risks, assuming that we don't recover British values and discover a you know, community-oriented spirit, because that might not be happening? What, what, what do you well, think? Well, I think, I think we have a problem. I think with the political left, I, it's completely lost its sense of patriotism. It's very much, you know, completely obsessed with identity politics, mm. you know, these grievance-obsessed narratives, the politics of victimhood. And I think in a sense, when you press, you know, when you press ahead with those, you know, the politics of victimhood, you are sowing the seeds of almost a group-based division yeah. in, in British society. Well, the political right, all too often, they've been obsessed with, you know, the, the free market, cap, you could say capitalist values of materialism and all the rest of it. But I think in the sense of that sense, that aggressive promotion of materialistic individualism, I don't think that's very helpful for the national community either, because then it almost atomizes people while people from the left are they're just, you know, trying to create groups. So really, you don't they, have a very cohesive society. They there. kind of go hand in hand in a way in, in um, you know, undermining um, solidarity and, and social bonds, I think. 100%. <laughs> We're so polarised. I think... Um, I think at the end of the day, people are um, uh, the loudest voices in British society is uh, speaking up on both the left and the right. And people are polarised because of Brexit and because of what's going on in the world. People are uh, seeking um, communities online and they're dwelling within these places mm. within the, these safe spaces where there it's an echo chamber and they're just repeat uh, everyone's repeating to each other the same things so um I, what i would uh, the danger is that actually britain becomes a little bit more fractured um and I, I what i hope actually is that with brexit once that's out of the way we can actually start healing a little bit as a country um and then we can start focusing on perhaps a sense of national identity outside of the european union uh, if, if it is going to happen so um if britain remains fractured mm. um, 
Um, it's that fractured is being exploited by the extremists themselves. Um, and um, it means that we're not coming up with coherent ways to defeat terrorism, to actually combat poverty, to actually combat racism. If we don't mm. know, if we can't identify a Nazi, for goodness sake, then how can the hell can we stop a Nazi? So um, there's, there's so much Britain can do. Maestro and Rakib, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, for more great Spike content or to make a donation, just visit spikes-online.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups. Automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a 4-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program.